So we are launching a new series today entitled Adulting. And uh, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a term that hit the culture in 2009 via Twitter. It really got traction in 2014 when Grammar Girl dubbed it the word of the year. It's a little disturbing to me that Grammar Girl has that kind of influence in our culture, but whatever. Um, and really, it's, uh, if you want a more official definition, Oxford Languages defines adulting this way. Uh, it's the practice of behaving in a way characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of the mundane but necessary tasks. All that stuff you saw in the video there, right? Really, adulting's all about, hey, these are the things we do now that we didn't do when we were kids, but we got to do them now because we're all grown up here. Now, uh, why this is relevant is uh, today we're kicking off uh, the series entitled Adulting. We've, we've entitled it this way because um, in this series we're going to take some time and we're going to work through the New Testament book of Colossians. And the book of Colossians is really a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossia. And it was this young adolescent church. And he's writing them about what it looks like to grow up and to adult in Jesus. In fact, at one point Paul says this to them. He says, it is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, we are writing to you about Jesus and we're doing so to try and help you grow up in him. And so what we're going to do in each week of the series, we're going to look at a different thing that Paul teaches us about what it looks like to think like an adult in Jesus, what it looks like to behave like an adult in Jesus. And then in our small groups during the week, either on Zoom or some are going to meet in person, we're going to dive deeper into this book of Colossians and really just try and understand, again, what is Paul teaching us about what it looks like to grow up in the Lord? So if you're not part of a small group yet, what are you waiting for? If you're like, well, I, it's church. I'm waiting to the last minute because that's what we do at church. The last minute is upon you, all right? So go to 4FCC.org slash groups. Get signed up for group. It's not too late yet. Again, there's some there meeting a person. Some are meeting uh, via Zoom, and you can be part of that. So let's take a minute and pray, and then we will dive into the first thing that Paul is going to teach us about adulting. Father, just uh, thank you uh, for this book, for some time to think about what does it look like to be grown up in Jesus. We just pray that today and in the weeks to come, here on Sunday in our groups, that you would open up our minds and our hearts and you would draw them to you. Um, Father, just as we are here and we are praying, I want to pray for uh, Bill and for Mary Ellen Hopfe as they are trying to navigate and figure out where Bill is going to have heart surgery, uh, please give them wisdom as uh, they're going to have to um, completely open him up. And this is um, significant surgery. Please help them to figure out what is going to be the best place to have that done. Father, I want to pray for Jonathan Cooper as he was rushed to the hospital this morning and uh, his temperature is elevated and his heart rhythms are all off. Pray that you'd have your hand of mercy on him your hand of healing on his body, and just pray for uh, Princess and their kids as um, they're just afraid and feeling this emotionally. Be with us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So um, when it comes to adulting in Jesus, 
we're going to pick up in Colossians, right in the middle of the chapter, where Paul talks to us about what it looks like to get Jesus right. Over the course of, of nine verses, Paul kind of unpacks for us like two key ideas about who Jesus really is. Because for, for the Apostle Paul, adulting in Jesus, it begins with getting Jesus right. Now, before we dive into what Paul has to say, I want to warn you about two things. First of all, Paul is going to challenge us intellectually today. Like to sit here and be intellectually lazy today, you're not going to be able to keep up with where Paul is going. He's going to make you think, right? So if because of COVID, we're not serving coffee in the lobby. So yeah, I can't tell you run out there and get a coffee. I see you brought one with you. That's a smart man right there. If you're at home watching online, you can push pause. You can make coffee. You can stimulate your neurons, right? And then you can come back. Paul's going to make us think today. The other thing, though, that Paul is going to do is Paul's going to be offensive today. What Paul is going to tell us about Jesus and the implications that come with that, it was offensive to the culture Paul was writing in in the first century. And in many ways, it is offensive to the culture we are surrounded by today. But Paul's going to go there anyway because he understands that no one can truly adult in Jesus without genuinely understanding who Jesus is, whether that information is offensive to the culture that they're part of or not. So Paul's going to go there. So as Paul begins, we're going to pick up with him in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And hopefully as we work our way through to verse 23, we're going to walk away with two key ideas about who Jesus truly is. So verse 15, Paul begins like this. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now this word we have translated here is image. In the original language, it's meant to carry with it two key ideas. On one hand, it's meant to capture this idea of symbolization and representation. Symbolization and representation. And then on the other hand, it is meant to capture the idea of, of manifestation and presence of what was symbolized. So for example... Um, you know, with everything going on with COVID, we've got safety protocols. Folk are trying to, you know, say, hey, wear a mask at church, you know, socially distanced. You know, we're trying to make sure there's enough room here so that, you know, there's six feet between each household. In order to do that, one of the things that we're asking folks to do is register online before they come to church. And had some people who are new first service and like, we didn't register. I'm like, relax. We have a certain number of seats we save for folks who are new. But if you come regularly, we're like, hey, make sure you get online, register for church before you come. It just helps make sure that we can do all the safety things right. Now, one of the fun things about that is I can see who is registered. And I'm a little neurotic, so on Saturday night and Sunday morning, I'm like checking the line. And I'm like, okay, who's coming to church today? And every now and then, I will see a name in the registration that I don't recognize, which tends to be one of two things. Either there's somebody who's coming to church, and I don't know their name yet, which is kind of embarrassing for me, um, or there's somebody new coming to church. So whenever I see a name that I don't recognize, I try and figure out who is this. Now, one of the fun things about social media, if I have your name, I can generally find you. You know, and so if, like, if I find you, I find your profile picture, basically what I have found is a representation, a symbolization of who you are. Now, if I wanted to up my stalker pastor quotient a little bit, after I find you on social media, unsolicitedly, I could just try and video chat with you over social media. And if you've never been to church before, that would be really creepy, right? 
here's just this weirdo, you've never met this person, and all of a sudden they're trying to video chat with you on social media, and you're like, this is a really good reason not to go to that church tomorrow, right? But if I was to do that, and I won't do that, um, it would be a manifestation of who you are. When Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what he's telling us is that if you could find God's profile picture on social media, the face that would be smiling back at you would be the face of Jesus. If somehow you could video chat with God over social media, it would be Jesus who would be talking to you on the screen. But with the language that Paul uses here, he takes it a step further. When he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's telling you with Jesus, we have somebody who steps out of the screen and is present with us. That in Jesus, you have the very character and heart and nature and substance of God himself present with us. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he tells us next of Jesus that he is the firstborn over all creation. The Son is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Now, with this term firstborn, please don't make the mistake that Paul is saying that of all the things that were created, Jesus was the first one to be created. That's not what that term means. And we know this for a few reasons. For example, and just a little bit later, Paul will say that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. Some translations will put that, that he is the firstborn from among those risen from the dead. Paul isn't saying, you know, Jesus was the first, of all the things created, Jesus was the first one to be created. And of all those to be resurrected, Jesus was the first one to be resurrected. Now, Paul knows there were, there were people resurrected in the Old Testament before Jesus ever came onto the scene. There, there are three people in the New Testament who were resurrected before Jesus. The, the term firstborn here, it's not in reference to order or time. It's in reference to rank and relationship. And as Paul continues to talk about Jesus and who he is in relationship to creation, this idea that Jesus is the first one to be created, it just falls apart. Listen to what Paul says next. He says about Jesus, he says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether you're talking about a throne, a power, a ruler, or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, when Paul tells you that all things were created by Jesus in the original language, you know what all means? All. It's really not that complicated. Paul is saying if it was created, Jesus was the one who created it. Paul intentionally puts Jesus into a very exclusive group. Uncreated, eternally existent beings. Not a very large club. Jesus makes it in there, according to Paul. In fact, Paul will say that when it comes to the totality of the created order, that all things were created in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. That Jesus is the manufacturer, he is the engineer, he is the beneficiary. If it was created, Jesus is the artist who thought it up. He sculpted it with his own hands, and it now sits in his family room for his pleasure. 
This is who Jesus is according to Paul. And then Paul doesn't stop there. He takes it a step further still. He says next of Jesus, he is before all things, and I love this next part. He says, and in him all things hold together. Now that is a monster huge statement if you understand how complex this world we live in is. For example, astrobiology will tell you that you, you need roughly 30 different factors in order to have life here on earth as we know it. We're talking about things like um, an oxygen-rich atmosphere, uh, liquid water, large continental land masses, uh, a home star that um, has the, the right size, the right temperature, an orbital path of your planet around that star. You get too close, you're going to burn up. You get too far, you're going to freeze out. Uh, you, you need a moon that's large enough to stabilize the, the, the tilt of the planet. You need you know, a moon that's large enough to stabilize the, the movement of the tides. You need a magnetic field strong enough on the planet to reflect the radiation of the star. Now, these are just six out of about 30 factors you have to have to have life. Any one of these six are the ones that we haven't mentioned. Any of those are missing, you do not have life. And any of those 30 factors dialed in differently, you don't have life. This is a really complex place we live. Now, do you know what the odds of all 30 of those factors being there, being dialed in just right on one planet are? About one chance in 10 to the negative 15th. Uh, that, that's about one one thousandth of one one trillionth. In case you're not a betting person, those are bad odds. When Paul says of Jesus that in him all things hold together, he's saying that Jesus is the one who made sure all those factors were there. That Jesus is the one who dialed them all in. That Jesus is the one who holds them in place today. We would, according to Paul, we would not be alive if not for Jesus. Now, if you're not picking up what Paul is putting down here, let me summarize it for you and then state it bluntly. Paul says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like, thinks like, sounds like, feels like, acts like, look like. Look at Jesus. Paul says that, that he is the firstborn over all creation. If it was created, no matter what it is, Jesus thought it up, put it into motion, and it's there for his benefit. And in him, all things hold together. This incredibly complex world that we live in, if not for Jesus, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. See, the first thing Paul wants us to get right about Jesus is this. Jesus is God. In the Jesus of the New Testament, who Paul is writing to us about, we find divinity come to us robed in humanity. Now, this idea of Paul's, it's one that doesn't come without complications in the culture that he was writing to then and the culture that we live in today. See, the, the Jesus who Paul describes here, according to Paul, Jesus can't just be a good man. He, he's, he can't just be a great teacher. He can't just be a powerful prophet. 
with the way Paul goes about describing Jesus, he doesn't leave room for those safe, innocuous, dismissible versions of Jesus. Now, according to Paul, Jesus is God come to us with skin on. And as such, according to Paul, he, he, he is so that, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Jesus is divinity wrapped in humanity, and he's come to us that way so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now, that creates further issues with the culture that Paul was writing to then and the one that we live in today. You see, if Jesus is divine, then he has the right to be supreme in everything in our lives. If Jesus is who Paul says he is, he has the right to be sovereign over every area of our lives. If, if Jesus is who Paul says he is, Jesus is God, come to us with skin on, and he has the right to rule the totality of your life and mine. Now, there are all kinds of implications that come with that. Just to name a few. If Jesus really is who Paul says he is, there's none of this... I like what Jesus has to say about some things, but I'm not so sure about what he has to say about other stuff. I'm down with Jesus when it comes to grace and mercy and, and like forgiveness and God's presence. I mean, that sounds good. But ah, you know what Jesus has to say about human sexuality or reproductive rights or race, I'm just, I'm gonna pass on that. No. If he is supreme in everything, I don't get to pick the parts of Jesus that I like and, and, and pass on the ones that I don't. He is supreme in everything. I don't get to say yes and uh, no, we're just going to exclude you from that. No, if, if Jesus is who Paul says Jesus is, then Jesus is supreme in everything. And that means I need to learn to conform my thinking to who Jesus is. I need to learn to conform, to submit my worldview to who Jesus is. I, I, need, I need to let him be supreme over the totality of my behavior. I don't get to pick and choose. I don't get to like this and not like that. He is supreme in everything. He is the Lord over everything, and I have no right to tell him no about anything. See, Paul wants us to understand that Jesus is God and that he is meant to be supreme in everything in our lives. And to the degree that we will recognize that and submit our lives to his lordship, Paul's saying, you will learn what it is to adult in Jesus. You will grow up in him. And to the degree that you refuse to see that, or you hold back these pockets of your life and say, no, 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 you don't get to be in control here. You will wallow in spiritual adolescence, Paul tells us. First thing he wants us to get right about Jesus is that Jesus is God. And as so, he has the right to be supreme in everything. But Paul doesn't stop there. There's another aspect of Jesus he wants us to get, and he talks to us about that in what he writes next. Picking up at verse 19, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
See, Paul's, Paul's next point here about who Jesus is is really quite simple. Paul wants us to understand that not only is Jesus God, but Jesus is Savior. He is the Savior. And, and believe it or not, that's offensive. That was offensive to the, to, to the culture Paul was writing to then, and the culture we are surrounded by today finds offense with that as well. And mainly because of why Paul tells us that we need a Savior. And Paul didn't hold back. He's really clear about it. L- listen to what he writes next. He says, once you were alienated from God. Once you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, who's excited about being described that way? Right? It's like the, the world we live in today, we're like, no, I'm, I mean, I'm not perfect. But I'm, I'm not a bad person. Sure, I could, I could use some help in my relationship with God, but who couldn't? I mean, basic, basically, I'm, I'm a good person. I've, just got, I've got some hang-ups here and there. And Paul's like, no, no. At one time, or maybe even currently, you were alienated from God. At one time, maybe even now, you were enemies with him. And you got that way because of your evil behavior. And we're like, Paul, that's offensive. Dude, you need some sensitivity training. Paul's like, this is the truth. And, and here's the thing. If you understand where Paul is coming from, you understand why he is saying this, and what he is saying becomes hard to avoid. See, see Paul understood every time we choose to do something our way rather than God's way, we make a declaration. Every time we decide, I'm going to do life my way instead of the way that God has called me to, we declare some things to God in heaven. Whether we mean to or not, whether we realize it or not, whether what we're doing is something big, whether or not something we're doing is small, we still make a declaration. Every time we lie instead of tell the truth, every time we're bitter and resentful instead of forgiving and gracious, every time we're passive-aggressive instead of direct, every time we talk about somebody instead of to somebody, every time we're self-indulgent instead of self-controlled or selfish instead of selfless, every time we lust or hate or covet or are greedy or whatever form, you know, doing it my way rather than God's way might take. I make some declarations. I say things to God like, you know, what happens in my life is under my jurisdiction, not yours. If anyone has the right to determine the direction of my life, it's me, not you. I've got this figured out when it comes to life here better than you do. Every time I do life my way rather than God's, I make declarations like that. Every time I do life my way rather than God's, I look to the creator, the sustainer, and the beneficiary of all of creation. And I say to him, I'm smarter than you. My authority is greater than yours. I am in control here. Every time I choose to do life my way rather than God's, whether I mean it or not, whether I realize it or not, what I am saying to him is, I am am the supreme one here, not you. And Paul's point is really very simple. When I interact with the one who thought up creation, who by his power brought it into existence, and who now holds it all together, when I declare to him with my actions or words or both, I'm the supreme one, not you. 
that creates alienation between the two of us. That creates a relationship of enmity between me and God. And, and that declaration in and of itself is evil. See, this is part of why the, the, the things that we were like, well, it's just a little thing. This is part of why that's, this is evil. It's just a little lie. I don't want to say that. I'll hurt her feelings. It's just a little lust. I mean, look, look at how he looks in those jeans. It's just a little gossip. I, I got to tell somebody. No. Maybe it's just a little of those things. But it's my way instead of God's way. And so with my little of whatever it is, I declare to God, I'm supreme. The role of God will be played by me today. Thank you very much. And that's, Paul's saying that, that's evil. That declaration in and of itself is evil. And that declaration is the foundation to any behavior that we would universally agree to be evil. Th things like genocide, things like, like human trafficking, things like racism, things like murder. Th th at their core, at their foundation, they begin with a heart that says, I'm supreme. I have the ultimate authority. I have, I have the, the, the ultimate smarts. I have the ultimate control. This is me. I get to choose this. It all begins with that. So, so whether it offends our modern sensibilities or not, Paul's like, hey, th th this, this isn't okay. We're broken here. We're, we're not all right. We, we need a savior. We, we, we like to think, well, hey, I, I'm, I'm basically a good person and people are basically good. And, and if we just try hard enough, we'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and give people enough education support, they'll be okay. And Paul's like, no, no, no. As evidenced by your choices and your declarations, your behavior is evil. And it's created alienation between you and God. It's created a relationship of enmity. And you need a savior. You need a savior. Now, some, that's offensive. Paul's like, hey, you need one anyway. And Jesus is that savior. Paul says next about Jesus. He says, he has, he says but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. See, see Paul is saying, because of Jesus the Savior, we, we, we don't have to be enemies with God any longer. We can have peace. But because Jesus died in our place, we don't have to be alienated from God any longer. We can be reconciled. See, this is the cross. And yet, again, to the culture Paul was writing to then, the culture that we are surrounded by now, this is offensive to some. This idea that God the Father would have God the Son suffer and die in our place, it's offensive to them. They'll analogize it this way. They'll say, you know, it's, it's like we're, we're, we're heading to an intersection and I'm heading this way and you're heading that way and you've got a stop sign so you're supposed to stop and I've got the right away. So as I make my way through the intersection, you blow through that stop sign and just T-bone my car. 
So I get out of my vehicle and I assess the damage and I'm furious with you. With what you did, you just irresponsible blowing through that stop sign ruined my vehicle. And so in anger, I go to my vehicle, I open up the door, I pull my son out and I just start pummeling the kid, make him pay for what you did. That's the cross in their minds. Now, never mind the fact that analogy breaks down on a host of levels when you stop and actually think about it. Like, like in the analogy, my, my son is this unwitting, unwilling victim. With the cross, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He's a willing substitute. With the analogy, my behavior is motivated by malevolent rage. With the cross, God's behavior is motivated by righteousness and justice. The, the, the whole analogy breaks down, but again, people find the cross offensive. But others, others, they recognize that the cross is good news. That, that in the cross, God takes all of the initiative to bring healing to our relationship with him. I mean, here, here I am telling God I'm smarter than you. I got this figured out better than you do. I have the authority. I'm in control. I'm the supreme one here. The role of God will be played by me today. Thank you very much. God would have been perfectly justified washing his hands and being done with me. And yet he takes all the initiative to bring reconciliation to that relationship. And all the sacrifice that's required to make that possible, God makes the sacrifice. God the Father offers his son in my place. God the Son lays down his life for the forgiveness of my sins. All the initiative, all the sacrifice is there on God's part. But Paul would have us recognize that, that because of the cross, we, we don't have to approach God as sinners. We can come as saints. That when, when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus applied to our lives. And so as Paul would say here, that we are holy now in his sight. That, that because of the cross, everything that I've done, intentionally, unintentionally, that I've said, that I've thought, that I've, that, that I've, the, the acts that I've committed, that, that I can be free from blemish from those things. That, that because of the cross, those of us who are justly incriminated before a holy God, that we can be free from accusation. To some, the cross is offensive. To others, the cross is good news. And to Paul, the cross was the gospel. This idea that, that our evil behavior put us at odds with God and that he sent his son to shed his blood to set us free. Paul says, this is the gospel. So as he wraps up the section, he says, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. See, again, to, to Paul, getting Jesus right is huge. He's like, listen, Jesus is the Savior, and you need one. And to the degree that you recognize that, you'll grow up in him. And to the degree that you deny that, you will wallow in spiritual adolescence. For Paul, growing up in Jesus, adulting in Jesus, it begins with getting Jesus right. And the first thing he wants us to grab hold of is Jesus is God. 
And as such, he has the right to be supreme in everything. And the next thing he wants us to grab is that we haven't gotten the first one right. That we haven't recognized that he is God. That we haven't recognized that he is supreme in everything that we've sinned. That we need a savior. But Jesus is that savior.